Hello, my name is Scott Cameron. This is the joys of teaching literature. We're talking all things high school English. And uh, if you want to know more about me, actually, I offer online professional development for high school English teachers. And the website is www.theteachersworkshop.com. So it's been a crazy couple of weeks, uh, especially I'm sure everybody has their own stories on a personal level about starting school. Um, I know I'm sort of in the middle of getting my children to get used to remote learning. And then my school district decided to give us a couple of weeks to get ourselves together and make sure we know what we're doing with Canvas. Uh, so we've been doing in-services and sort of chatting about different best practices <laughs> as far as online practices or sort of delaying our school year or starting remote. And then uh, I think sometime in October that we'll be back. A lot of I know a lot of schools are back, and I know a lot of schools closed down. Uh, a lot of schools planned on opening, and then at the last minute decided not to open. So it's they, they keep reminding us day after day that we're playing this by ear, we're playing this by ear. Things change um, really on an hourly basis. Our governor just said, you know, there's not too much evidence to suggest that there's going to be a widespread, you know, uh, problem with the virus related to school so you know we're just it is frightening to, I think for anybody just to establish a new routine we established this routine where you know, the quarantine happened and we got the three months of online schooling in there and we learned a lot you know with all the different tools available to us and looking at all the different websites there's literally thousands to consider and uh, so I think it's I know I've been working in the summer uh, so I've gotten a little bit used to it, just being around people in general. But I think a lot of just talking to people in conversation, different parents, you know, with my 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 children's, you know, going to soccer practice with talking to parents and stuff about all this. They're just, you know, coming out of some of them are coming out of a summer, you're not doing anything. Um, some people were comfortable going to pools. Um, so everybody's just got different, very very different comfort levels with this whole thing. I'm sure there are a lot of people retiring early. There's people who just totally not comfortable going back um, and then there's people who are you know just want to make like anybody else who's going to work right now I think they just want to make sure it's safe um, you know I was talking to a couple of different people about all the different rules and different you know things that their their workplaces have set up so that that it doesn't spread and everybody's got a story about how somebody got it literally everybody I've talked to is like oh yeah so-and-so got it and so there's just a lot to consider with going back to school right now. It's it's not an easy time for parents. It's not an easy time for teachers. I, I, it's definitely not an easy time to be an administrator right now. I'm sure they are fielding thousands of questions daily from parents about you know what's either going wrong or going right, or um, I want to switch my kid from this to that, and you know how are we going to figure out who's remote and who's going in person? And how many kids do we have in each class and the spacing in the classroom so there's just a lot going on right now and there's just a lot of things to consider as far as you know returning to school safely and 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 making it fun you know and making it you know and that's what I'm kind of trying to remember in all of this is that the kids are really real I don't I use the word lightly uh, or I use the word sparingly uh, suffering you know, I don't want to make that like, oh, they're suffering. But, you know, I, I imagine being in my 20s or 30s, single, living on my own, 
you know, even being a teenager living with my parents, we were really just trying to establish your own independence. You're trying to establish that you can think independently and that you can handle responsibility. You can drive a car. You can go out with your friends at night and, and you know, go to places without them always knowing where you are and that sort of thing. And, and then all of a sudden you're just under their watch all of the time. And, um, yeah, you know, and at school is just when you go, when you, everybody's probably listening to this as a teacher and we love school. I mean, school is, you know, it's the saddest part, I think, for thinking about my own children, that it was always a place that was just so much fun to go to. You go there, you socialize with your friends, you play sports, you know, you engage in really meaningful after-school activities where you're really trying to push progress forward and make a difference in the world. Uh, there's just hundreds of, of different activities where you can go and play music if you want, if that's your thing. And there's just the whole world isn't a school. It's like on this kind of little level where, you know, it's obviously not the whole world, but really any career or any kind of anything, you know, if you want to be a visual artist, if you want to talk a foreign language and translate for people, I don't know. There's just so many different things that happen in a school on a daily basis when you think about it. It's amazing. It's an incredibly fun place to go. You get to learn about how the world works. You can get creative and crafty and artsy and talk about solving the world's problems and, and talking about what the world's problems even are. You're learning about those. I remember reading Night by Ellie Wiesel and just thinking like, what what do we do? You know, just, just those kind of realizations. You're like, this is the world I live in? Um. And so you kind of encounter different literature that, that really makes you think differently, talk differently, treat people differently, treat people with kindness, with love and compassion. You just learn to be a better human being in a school. And, and I think, you know, our parents are, are definitely the biggest influence in our lives as far as who we become and how we treat people. Uh, but as far as being, you know, citizens of the world, our parents can only take us so far, and it's so important to get points of view outside our parents' point of view. Maybe our parents are really enlightened people who have read thousands of books or something, um, but but a single person is a single person. And when you get to a school, you, you meet teachers and coaches, and all your different friends have, have points of view from their parents that they've kind of taken on, and it's just an exciting, exciting place, and it's... <sighs> You're starting virtually, I, and and everybody here, I think teachers definitely know, you know more than just how important starting the the first couple of days of school. I think there was a I remember getting professional development on this a couple of years ago. I think somebody wrote a book about it even that that the first days of school you you either convince them to love school or you convince them to hate school on the first couple of days, and. The, and because that's the rhythm, the, the rhythm or whatever the rhythm is, is that they, they that happens, that's established almost immediately. And and I think children are very very good because they're just sitting there listening to you and watching you. They're very good at knowing a, a, a person's personality and who they really are because they just they just watch you the whole time. Think about it: your friends, your your even your family. They're not always paying attention to you 100% of the time. Right? When you lecture for, for 10, 20, 30 minutes, whatever it is, and, and your thoughts are flowing out, I mean, think about that. Even just that fact alone, who's going to listen to you for 20 minutes straight? Nobody, right? <laughs> so, and, and I'm not even saying that I 
obviously nobody really lectures for long periods of time anymore, even though that's the school that I grew up with in high school and college. It was just sit back, listen, and take notes. Um, but that that's completely not realistic at all. Um, so they know us and they because they just see all these little habits of ours and how we organize things and uh, in one in some sense they they don't know us at all because this is all an act and it's we have this professional academic you know business-like kind of reality we're in in the school where it's all work and no play or something um, but then there's and there's just flashes of us being a human being and telling stories about our lives and trying to you know speak wisdom and truth to these kids about how the world works and trying to answer their questions about how the world works or at least engage in conversations about how the world works and why it is the way it is i've gotten that question before <laughs> we'll be reading this text um i think it was ventures of huckleberry finn or something and it was one of my students who was just like why are why are people the way they are why did they hate so much <laughs> i was like i don't know you know it's their upbringing it's it's the fact that they never really met people outside of their little town or their little circle of friends and they have a couple of bad people that influence how they think and that's just how it goes. And they don't meet people who have different points of view and think differently than them and they never engage in conversation where they can come to terms with somebody and compromise and really you know, respect and, and, and consider someone else's opinion. And I don't know. I mean, I try to come up with answers for the, some of these things. But my point is it's so exciting. Um, and the first couple of days I really learned to just hit the ground running. I think every teacher knows that. You have to make it. To, you can't hit the nuts and bolts on the first day. Even though I said that, I, I did get sucked into that trap with, um, with virtual learning just because it was like, hey, we're virtual, so here's what that means. Everybody's kind of freaking out about it. You know, we did it for three months before, but I know I'm like a new person to you, so let me just cover cover a couple of things. But I still started with a conversation about uh, this project I'm going to start with called Love and Stories, where it's like, you know, here's these texts written by people who are dead. Or it is not not I don't even know if it's the majority of texts, but right, a lot of literatures, and that's okay because the ideas are still alive. But the the big question is why. Number one, it's fiction, and number two, the person's not alive anymore. So, so what's the, what's the point? <laughs> uh, and so you have to address that question right away. And it's so exciting to get to that question because when you're talking about people's single consciousness, that single consciousness has, you can only encounter so many books and movies and conversations and have so many experiences and go to so many places. You can be the most well-traveled person and well-read and, and just know tons about how the world works, but you're still only a single person. And so the internet and, and education, where you encounter these new things and you just you uh, get to engage in, in real conversations with, with people who also have all these different life experiences, whether that's because they traveled and read a lot or because they just have a unique set of experiences uh, with, with their life. And so remember that, never forget this conversation I had with a kid who was trying to find a topic for his college essay. And I was like, well, okay, you don't have any ideas? Like, what, what, what activities do you do? Like, after school activities, sports, anything? Like, traveling? I don't know. And he said, no. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, well, why? Like, why don't you do any of these activities or sports? You just don't have any interests or what? And uh, he said, no, my dad, like, works in New York. He takes this train. He's a single parent. He comes back really late at night. 
and I have this younger brother that I have to make sure he like gets dinner and does his homework and like and he's like 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 talking with this tone where it's like I'm already boring you why are you listening and like you you can't I can't believe that that you don't understand what you just told me right you're telling me that you are a father basically a father figure who has a tremendous amount of responsibility and 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 shows their younger brother how to to you know take life and and you know again make sure they're fed make sure they're doing their homework i mean it's a lot of work and and you're sacrificing think about how much you're sacrificing to to make your family cohesive and and not fall apart and have your brother go around around school and after school and make trouble and get into trouble with friends and you're not doing that you could probably do that dad might not know that you're traveling you know running around after school with all your friends and doing whatever you want while he's working but you you did it yeah you're just great person who who cares about his little brother cares about his dad his father and doing what he wants um it shows a humongous amount of character and so getting kids to to realize that there's like this um unique quality to their experiences is difficult um but but literature is is um about sort of you know opening up all these you know stories basically you know in so many ways there's a lot more than just that but it really is just opening up this whole world of stories to them and 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 when you read the news, it's kind of talking about this a little bit today. When you read the news, you you, you get a you capture this little slice of a headline, the soundbite of someone's life, where they either did something great or did something terrible. And that's how the news works. It's either like somebody really really powerful uh, who has so much money they don't know what to do with it, and so much power and say in how the world runs and. Or it's somebody who's on the opposite end of the spectrum who's just committing a crime or you know did something that we can't believe or completely shocks us. But in either case, you don't get the full story of the entire character, the whole entire person, their whole life story. And so literature opens those up to all of that. So I start the year with with a whole set of quotes basically that speak to some of these things and speak to the to the magical quality that is this thing we call symbolism. I mentioned this a little bit in my last podcast about symbolism and how I start with symbolism. But either way, it's this year especially. I'm sure a lot of teachers have already started <laughs> because we started late. But I figured I'd talk a little bit about and, – and it, it's really important to talk about this right away just because it hopefully will inspire. And sometimes if you just ask them what they think is the value of literature, they'll come up with the answers. Um, and it's not something you have to, to, to give them. I mean I usually just ask them and they just – they. They get to the, all the points that I want to get to, uh, and so that's exciting too because they, they, a lot of them do understand the value of literature. It's not something we have to teach, but either way, it's it's the foundation of everything in the year, right? Just if they take notes on this, or if they write this down, or if they remember this conversation, every essay that they write on a piece of literature, or every st- short story that they write, or every poem that they write, or film that they create, they are they have all of this in the back of their head. Because they're t- they're thinking in terms of what did the author intend? Like, what did he want to do? Like, what is the whole point and value of literature? What is the value of it? What is it? What makes it relevant in today's world? I mean, that's what we that's we are on the level of the author when you're thinking about that. And then when you're creating a piece of art as well, obviously you're thinking about that. You're not just creating. I mean, sometimes we create stories just to create stories, but usually we want to to achieve something 
with that story. And it's not that doesn't necessarily mean we have to have a message or or some kind of prescribed code of living that we want people. We just want to ask really good questions. We want people to consider how they live their lives, why they live the lives they do. They want to think about things like the status quo and convention and all that. So, so that's what that's what we're talking about today. So that's a really long introduction. I guess I've had a lot on my mind um, thinking about school, and and I guess my point with with all of that that I just said was that every year it's super important to start strong, but this year and and start showing your humanity, having a laugh, telling a story. Um, these kids, some of them have not really done much this summer, and they're not going to be doing much. Uh, even if we were in school, they, it's hard to socialize and go places. I mean, you wear a mask and say six feet, but um, it's a, it's just a hard time. And and I think it's just that much more important. And I know the tech piece is just huge. <laughs> um, there's things that I, like I my wife was is in the same situation with school and um, trying to set up her website and and how do I do this and that and I'm trying to walk her through it. And uh, she's like, how do you how do you know all this stuff? I was like, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to like try to figure it out. But then, of course, when I go to my first class, <laughs> I didn't publish the Zoom link, which is, you know, for a virtual class, you got to have a Zoom link. And uh, I eventually got it. I had a student come in there like, oh, one of your students from another class gave me the link. And um, they, it's like not working on this other site that we went to. And I don't. it's not on your, your Canvas page. So I like published it and just like instantly everybody came into the class and it was fine. We only wasted like five seconds, but everyone's going to run into some kind of tech issue, whether the compute, you know, the network crashes. I think that happened in my district where I live uh, or whatever. And you just got to be ready to be flexible as possible. Let kids just hand in assignments however they hand in assignments, whenever they hand in assignments. If, however they budget and organize their time, you just got to let them do all that stuff. Uh, I had a couple of questions there, like, is it okay that I start this assignment now? And because I got this like science lab coming up or whatever, I'm like, yeah, you got to do it whenever you're gonna do it. Do it early, do it a little bit late. Just get it done, um, and and you know, don't fall too far behind. I think it's just it's important for administrators, teachers, parents. Everybody's got to be flexible. It's not bad mouth each other. Um, expect too much from each other. Uh, it's just it's an odd time we're trying to figure it out, out as we go we want everybody to be safe everybody's got an opinion about you know how much we should or shouldn't do um, and it's just a time where we have to be calm and, and not get frustrated um, and, and and trust that our that our children can can navigate this with us it's going to might be a little bit more work uh, than it normally would be but that's kind of what my point is is that we, we all have to put in a little bit more work that's not something that anybody wants to hear like you're gonna have to work harder um, but I think in this context it's you just have to work a little bit harder um, and and so that's that's what I'm trying to keep in mind is that I have to be more human more engaging like you're behind a screen I mean these kids you know their attention spans and they sit in front of a screen all day so whatever you're doing you got to make it meaningful you have to try to keep them away from the screen as much as possible whether they're writing on a piece of paper and taking a picture of it um, recording their audio, you know, the, just their voice on a, on on a, with voice memo or something on their phone, you know, that doesn't require looking at a screen. So you just have to think about the things that they that require looking at a screen, uh, and think about, you know, how we we can we can keep them away from the screen and keep them engaged in in what they're learning. Uh, so that's all really important. Anyway, 
the title of this podcast is called Introduction to Literature, The Six Values. So I tried to boil it down to six different values. Virtual school starts tomorrow and I'll have a challenging task. Convince teenagers from behind a screen to not only appreciate the magic of literature, but to understand its value and place in our society. I love opening the year with a question. <laughs> really, what are we doing? <laughs> what is the point of this? What's the point of English class? What's the difference between fiction and nonfiction? It's a really good question. And what's the value of literature? Many students are just beginning to find their way in the world and make sense of their society and their surroundings. They might already love reading. Some of them already love it. Most of them actually did love it when they were younger, when they had someone to guide them through it with the words and sounds and emotions of the book, sit next to them reading a book right, with words and, and you know, exclamations and different really strong emotions that you just listen to someone else read. Our students have a single set of experiences and will only have that single set of experiences unless we open up them up to the world of ideas and stories in literature. So here they are. These are my six main values of fiction. The first one, understand self, identity, and relationships. And so I want to start each of these values. And these are quotes that I'm going to, I'm going to present to my students. So I'll, I'll read these quotes um, to, get, you know, to get them to think about these values. I don't give them the values, but quote. And this is from uh, Brian Wicker, quote, the truth has been emerging that metaphor is not just a way of describing things, but is a way of experiencing them. The basis for this change was the recognition that metaphor is a lamp, not just a mirror, held up to nature. To use metaphors stems from a dangerous yearning for reassurance that the world I inhabit is conformable to my designs upon it. It has the meaning I want it to have. Unquote. And here's a set of questions, so I'm going to approach this, a set of questions for each of those, in this case, three things, understanding self, identity, and relationships. So can we, can we read critically? Can we truly think for ourselves? What is the true nature of our relationships with our family and friends? What is identity, and how does an identity change? How do we create an identity? All right, number two is, to capture the essence of reality and consciousness. <laughs> That's a, I know it's a big one, but those two together, right? Reality being external and consciousness being internal is what I was after there. So the quote for this one is from Thomas Hardy, quote, beauty lay not in the thing, but what the thing symbolized, unquote. So, so yeah, how can, how can small things contain beauty or become symbolic. And that's kind of an interesting connection between beauty and, and symbolism. It is kind of what beauty is. is that's the, kind of the essence of the quote, is that a, that a symbol is endowed with meaning. And when it has this meaning beyond itself, it becomes more than what it is. And that's really the essence of beauty. So how can we connect with the consciousness of those in our lives, strangers, and people in, in the news. So those are three very different sort of people, people to connect with. That's the people we know, strangers, and people in the news. How can literature help us be grateful for the good in our lives? How can literature help us love with compassion, intensity, and goodwill? 
How can literature help us understand the full story and not just the soundbite? Uh, number three, interpret cultural and political discourses. So that has to do with something much larger. We're kind of, I guess, going from, you know, in case of number one, the individual self, number two, beyond ourselves into reality and, and also consciousness. Uh, and then in this case, uh, cultural and political discourses, which is on, sort of a, on a larger scale. Um, so the, and here's a quote from uh, Mikhail Bakhtin. Quote, the illiterate peasant, miles away from any urban center, nevertheless lived in several language systems. He prayed to God in one language, sang songs in another, spoke to his family in a third, and when he began to dictate petitions to the local authorities through a scribe, he tried speaking yet a fourth language, the official literate language, or paper language, unquote. So that's interesting too, because that, ha that can actually connects identities and discourses. And, and the, the languages that we speak in, given in certain contexts, we change who we are depending on the context. And that's, that's a struggle for a teenager, I think, and, or even an adult, to realize that we become these different people depending on, on where we are. Um, and it, we are in there at the core of, every, of all of it, but, but there are those different contexts. So how does fiction allow, so here are the questions with that. How does fiction allow us to hear the stories of the powerless? Can literature help us make sense of suffering and death? Is language a status symbol? <laughs> I was thinking about that with the paper language in the last quote, because I think language can be a status symbol to some extent. Um, how are language and power connected? How do we speak differently depending on the context of the conversation? And can literature help us overcome limitations? So that's a really good one, I think. Because uh, when we express ourselves, we, we're, we're saying what we want. And, and sometimes what, what is, it goes against us, what keeps us back from doing things, is us not, not making, making our own desires real with words. Um, and that's the dangers of silence. So number four, uh, I don't know if it extends beyond society or what I call cultural and political discourses, but places is really what all number four, mapping out places. That's what language does and literature does. So here's a quote from Charles Baudelaire. Quote, the artist is the last to linger wherever there can be a glow of light, an echo of poetry, a quiver of life, or a chord of music, unquote. So here are the questions with that. How does literature depict a place? How do places represent the consciousness of the character or ourselves? Why do places have social codes and norms that dictate the behavior of most, peop most of the people living there? How can literature expose the flaws of a place and improve on the status quo? How does literature create an atmosphere and a feeling of a place? How does literature explain race, ethnicity, and tradition? How, and here's the last one. How can we connect to our surroundings in a spiritual way? So that's for, you know, I don't know, maybe all the 19th century. Um, was a big sort of approach and, and, and challenging question is, is how we, how, you know, if we're connecting consciousnesses, and that's the kind of the purpose and value where I, I spoke to, what I spoke to in number two is a crossing of consciousnesses. Um, number four is about crossing uh, spiritual paths, if you want to call it that. Uh, we think about all religions, they, 
you know, talking about spirituality in the sense of a spirit that connects all man and, and the universe. Um, all religions have some kind of seer, prophet, visionary that contains the spirit of God, right? That has is able to to speak uh, God's language, if you will, or or take on the, the whatever spirit that is God. They have that in them. That's the basic essence of the leaders, or like I said, prophets or visionaries in most religions. Um, and so to, get, so, to becoming a part of that spirit and, and knowing that that spirit is everywhere, uh, I think is one of the most powerful sort of parts of literature. And, and like I said, in the 19th century, I think it was about nature. Uh, and that's in the 20th century, it became more about that. It was, you know, T.S. Eliot, I, I think, <laughs> who knows, but I think was trying to figure out how he could connect not to nature, but to, to urban life, to cities. Maybe they fell flat and disappointed them in most cases, I think. Um, but some of, the, some of the metaphors, I feel like he's trying. Uh, Amiri Baraka is the same way. You know, he's got this relationship with, with city life that, that you see it's, that it's, there's like this griminess to it, but there's this incredible beauty and passion and energy and life to it as well. And he kind of wakes up the city, whereas T.S. Eliot might kill it. <laughs> it might have been dead or he killed it. I don't know which one. Um, but, but there are a lot of people in the 20th and 21st century who are kind of waking up, you know, waking us up to the consciousness of places and how our consciousness are connected to places. We are the places that surround us, I think is the point um, in the 20th century. So number five examine psychological oppositions and conflicts. So that's kind of taking everything I've, I've talked about so far and examining them in the lens, through the lens of oppositions and conflicts and then trying not to just solve those conflicts but um, just see that they're there and, and linger on them a little bit. You know, I think the greatest poems just let us, have to, we have to just linger on it and think about it and let it settle in uh, and doesn't necessarily want us to extract one single idea or one single meaning. It's multiple ideas, multiple meanings, and that's democracy. It's not, you know, here's this one answer, but there's many answers, there's many points of view, and we can work together to to have a conversation about what this poem is about as opposed to uh, some authority telling us what the answer is. Um, and so also placing the idea of oppositions in, in the context of psychology. So, so here are the questions that I have with that one. So what conflicts exist in our unconscious and how do we recognize them? How does literature help us know what, what we want um, or what we want to do and what we should do? Can the experiences of a person determine their destiny? Do we have free will? Uh, this is a question the Greeks considered but I think in the late 20th, 21st centuries, we're also kind of looking at it again. Like, is determinism a thing? Is our, our surroundings really dictate? I mean, you can really look at the economics and the, and the statistics associated with, you know, where you grow up and, you know, who your parents are and what that has to do with, with where you end up. Um, and, and I think that free will uh, maybe is a myth uh, where... We are, we, we have experiences, we go to bed, we let them settle into our brains, and then those experiences are who we are when we wake up. And we, we speak and we make decisions based on what we have experienced. 
So where's free will then? If if you know our bodies are doing all these autom like in the psychological or physiological sense rather, uh, in the physiological sense, it's there's all this automatic stuff going on. So mentally, that's also true. So where's the 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 ghost in the machines uh, of our of our brains? Um, so anyway, what well, many other questions are? What conflicts exist between people, societies, or countries? And how can we manage or handle these conflicts? It's a, <laughs> a massive question, but it is there. And the literature, I think, is trying to, like, if, you, if you've read Things Fall Apart, that's, that's the question, right? What conflicts exist between people, societies, or countries? And how can we manage or handle these conflicts? That is the, the heart and soul of that book, where colonists come to Africa and they have, you know, Christianity and they have a system of governance and then uh, you know all of the people already live in Igbo society have their set of governance and religion and they have to manage that conflict right? and so the book is getting us to think about that and then the last also kind of major question <laughs> for us is what is fair and just and that's you know if you think about great expectations you know, that's I think a big question of what is fair about you know how we see people, how we treat them, how we punish them. You know, does the punishment fit the crime? Uh, are we forever a prisoner of our our actions? That's a a quote from a NPR podcast on Hamlet. You know, and that's sort of the question of Hamlet: is are we going to allow the the single act that we that we the single crime that we committed to really just to to define the rest of our lives, or are we going to give people the opportunity to get better and, and rehabilitate themselves and I'm kind of going off on a tangent there but so yeah that's kind of a large question and then final, last but not least and this is the whole point I think it's it's the point right um, because everything else kind of leads you into number six, the last point here number six because all that's the foundation of number six and number six is uh, define the past and create the future so you're, you're basically taking all of that stuff, the conflicts, the places, the, the relationship between people, the cultural and political discourses, right? conscious uh, uh, understanding ourselves and our individual selves. And then we're saying like, okay, so I understand who my, my country, I understand the history of my country, I understand the history of my world, I'm getting there, I sort of understand it, and how all these different groups of people sort of interact with each other and how we, lay, we label all these different kinds of people according to their race, their age, their gender, their sexual orientation, gender identification, right? There's all these different ways that we're coming to understand each other and who, who we are. And there's communities of people that have similar behaviors in common, um, and that is culture. And then, and then so we're placing ourselves inside all of that <laughs> and trying to figure out who we are in that moment, but also in that past. And that's a humongous task, right? To read all of those, you know, novels and, and poems and plays and, and the histories, um, scientific thought uh, and philosophical thought, all of the ideas of the past. Then we're trying to understand who we are once we understand all of those ideas of the past. And we're trying to put ourselves inside those ideas that existed before us and say, I think this which is so difficult because we need to know all of those ideas that came before us in order to say that and to, have con to say it with conviction. Uh, this is who I am. These are my, my values. 
and this is my morality, right? This is, you know, what makes me me is that I have considered all these other people that came before me, and I consider the people that are surrounded, you know, that I'm surrounded by on the internet and on podcasts and movies and the news and journalists and world leaders, and I see all of those people saying things about the, the current state of affairs and the crises that we face right now. <laughs> and I'm able to place those crises within this larger context of history. But I think this, <laughs> right? And that this is the future. Um, and that is where we're going. And we don't go anywhere <laughs> unless we have a plan. And that's the question of free will. The question of free will is, is not, you know, am I going to have this happen to me and make this choice? It's do I have the ability to, to look into my own future and to my society's future and know what the best path forward is? Can I come up with a plan that takes all points of view? You know, this is a, we live in a country, and this is true for all of human history. Right? We're, we, we encounter death. We encounter people dying you know, by our own, this is our own fault. You know, sometimes it's a natural phenomenon, but when it's something that's preventable, like wearing a seatbelt, <laughs> right? And nobody liked when they made that law back in, I think, the 90s. Um, but there's just things that we do because we can prevent death. And, and so whatever solutions that, that you come up with, whoever, whatever political side of the aisle you're on, it doesn't matter. It's the conversation about the best, best path forward and how to get to that goal and how to, how to achieve your goals um, and what plan you need to put in place to get to those goals, to get to the society that you want to live in, the society that you feel comfortable being a part of. The society that has the values that you have, that we all have, there is, there's wrong and right somewhere out there, and and getting to right and getting to living in a safe world where people are civil and love each other, respect each other, and understand each other's differences, and and where we can live in a country that that has a level playing field where the person that works the hardest wins. Not the person who makes the most money or who has the most advantages, but the person who just works the hardest. That's who we want to win. We want to live in a meritocracy where, where work is rewarded. You know, that's, this is like the question of, of communism and socialism and capitalism. Uh, it's, it's one where how do we just value work for what it is? Not We don't want to force each other to, to, to work. Um, we want to be in a, live in a society where everybody enjoys working and sees the value of work, no matter what it is we do, because um, everybody's a, a part of it and everybody's making the world go and the world the wheels spin, um, no matter if you, what you contribute. So, um, <laughs> so that so I haven't even gotten to number six. So that's defining the past and creating the future, right? So here's the quote from Amiri Baraka: "Quote, words have users." But as well, users have words, and it is the users that establish the world's realities, unquote. That is just fantastic, because words, like there's reading and then there's writing, and the, and the writers, after they've read, are the ones that create the world's realities. I love that quote. 
So the questions with this one are, how can literature help us to become more imaginative and creative? That's, that's the core part of, of literature. It's the imagination. It's the, it, the fiction itself is the point, right? Like people roll their eyes at fiction, like, but it's fiction. And it's like, yes, <laughs> it's fiction. Like that is the world that we live in is the one that we imagine, right? Somebody's decided to think of a chair and then it was a chair. Uh, you know, somebody decided to think of a treadmill and we had treadmills. Um, the essence of fiction is that we imagine and we conjure up this, this, this world that is not real and we, we say it's real. And that's anybody who makes a product or has a, a solution to a problem. Whatever, whatever is not in existence, <laughs> right? And that's the history of our whole world is basically the, all every tool that you look at, every sport that you play didn't exist at some point. Man has, has created the entire world around them, minus the trees, the sky, and, the, and vegetation, right? and animals. Right? Everything else is, is something we created. We created a road, we, we saw a body of, we saw a river, and we thought bridge, right? And, and, and so everything, really, if you just use your eyes, is, is, is a product of the imagination. And so fiction is saying, just, just we're saying to our students, just write create that world right whatever world that you want i want you to write it down on a piece of paper it starts with your thoughts and then it is 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 everything i want you to to be a part of this ongoing creation that we live in when we live in a city you see you can you, you know that on a monthly basis there's a new store over here there's a new new product here um yeah, there's a, 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 a place you can rent a bike over here. I remember seeing that for the first time and thinking, that's a great idea. And so we live surrounded by ideas. And fiction is like, party on with your ideas. It's fiction, right? History is this fact that happened before. Fiction is, the, is, the, is what is going to happen next, right? And so, so they're, they're obviously connected. Um, but, but literature, you know, is it escape or is it immersion? Right? How can literature allow us to connect ideas? And how can we learn from the past and create a better, more efficient, and more just society? That is what we're after. It's connecting all of the ideas that are out there, whether they be sociology, psychology, history, science. Like we're here to, to get the ideas and, and put them together and then make this fantastic, fantastic, fantastic place. So good luck, everybody. We're going to need it this year. <laughs> Thanks for listening.